Amen. Thank you, Kelly. It's a powerful song, The Power of the Cross. Hey, good to see you again. Um, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been certain, just absolutely certain, certain with a capital C, that something was going to happen until it didn't happen? You were just certain, then it didn't happen. I've known young women who were certain their boyfriends were going to propose to them on Thanksgiving night, don't you know? And then all of a sudden, it's Christmas Eve, and that's the night. They didn't do it Thanksgiving. They're going to do it Christmas Eve. And then all of a sudden, it's like July 4th, and they didn't put a ring on it. Didn't think I was going to say that, but I did. Always solid start to a sermon to drop Beyonce on it. Maybe, if we can get a little bit closer to home, you were certain you were going to get that job. That interview had gone well, you had it in the bag, and the phone call you got was not the phone call you were expecting, right? And I can even take it closer to home. If you're like me, you have prayed and prayed and said all the magic words and rubbed all the magic lamps, and God didn't do what you wanted Him to do. You were certain this time, you were certain, and then it doesn't happen. So the easy question when this happens, another question, the easy one is, how do you feel about it? Well, if you're like me, you don't feel. You're shell-shocked is what you are. You're walking around in a daze, right? I just knew it. And you're trying to come to grips with now life as I know it without what I wanted. You're in a daze. You're shell-shocked. And then if you're like me, you move from daze to despair. And you sit there and you say, what am I going to do now? What's next, right? I guess this is my life now. And maybe you say some, you know, choice words and you move on, but you're despairing, you're desperate. You go from dazed to despairing. So the harder question then is what I just mentioned. So now what? Now what? And so here's the thing. I'm certain I've got to be certain because it seems to look that way in the Gospels. I'm certain that this is how the disciples felt. And not only the disciples, but other followers of Jesus who Luke tells us about in his account of the burial of Jesus. And that's where we're going to look tonight in Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. I'm certain that they felt dazed. I'm certain that they felt desperate because they were certain that Jesus was God's King. They were certain that Jesus was God's King, especially on Palm Sunday, what we talked about last week. They're certain because Palm Sunday, Jesus of Nazareth, their teacher and friend, rides a donkey like a king riding into a capital city of Jerusalem. They're certain, and they're excited, and they're singing, and they're saying, here comes the king in the name of the Lord, and all these other kings, namely Rome, is finally going to get what's coming to them. They were certain. So then Jesus walks into the temple, and all last week, what we call Holy Week, What's been going on 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who had rode in victorious as a king, begins challenging the leaders. He begins challenging their religious system, their thoughts, who God is welcoming, and he's putting it to them on the busiest and most politically charged week in the Jewish year, and that is the Passover week. 
So then Thursday hits, and we celebrated what's called now Maundy Thursday, not Monday, Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper. And so these disciples and followers who were certain on Sunday and were pretty charged up during Holy Week, it all begins, I think, to unravel Maundy Thursday, that Last Supper, when Jesus begins to say, now I've got to leave you. I've told you the Son of Man's going to be delivered over and on the third day He's going to rise, but all they hear is, leave you. And I think they're dazed. And then they go from that place to the garden. They're dazed. They're asleep. They don't know how to feel. And then here comes Jesus, arrested, then tried in the late night in Caiaphas' house. There's a council that's met in the late hours. And they're saying, Jesus is a blasphemer. Jesus needs to die. And what was certain on Sunday, on Friday, is now totally out the window because they killed the king. What do you do now? Good Friday was a terrible Friday for Jesus' followers and His disciples. And we just read that these women stood far away and they saw their hope, their king, bloodied and suffocated on a cross. So tonight is a good night for a choice. And the choice is this. It was a choice that Jesus' followers had then. It's a choice that Jesus' followers have today. It's a choice for every one of us. And the choice is this. Despair or hope? Despair or hope? You can despair in the shadow of death or you can hope in the One who lives again. That's the invitation of Easter. Every year and every day. Because the choice for you every day, when you say yes to hope, you're saying no to despair. Christians are people who are people of life and hope. And we're stubborn because hope is a choice. How many of you are glasses half empty people? Let's see them. My wife, I think, is out and she would be raising her hand. Aaron, loud and proud, you are the only Debbie Downer in the room. <laughs> Brother, Aaron, right here, locked in. Bobby and Isaac, okay, like father, like son. This is for you tonight. Hope is a choice. Hope is a choice. Now for you glasses half full people, which should be everybody else because nobody raised their hand a second ago. Thank you. This is for you too, because Christians are a stubborn people that look death in the face and say, because of Easter, death does not have the last word. And Easter is an invitation, and every day is an invitation to hope in the living one. But tonight, I'm asking you to look at these women. I'm asking you to look at Joseph of Arimathea. Take Jesus from the cross and bury him. I want you to feel tonight for a moment before we get to hope. I want you to feel the days and despair that Jesus' followers are walking in. And they're saying, what do we do now? Because we meet them Friday. Who are we meeting? Let's look here in verse 50 of Luke chapter 23. Now there is a man named Joseph. Everybody say, hi Joseph. 
this is a Joseph that doesn't get a lot of credit or pub around these parts unless you're watching Bible miniseries. Even then you probably won't see Joseph. This is Joseph and who's Joseph? We see that he's a member of the council. That's a huge surprise. The council is like the supreme court in the Jewish religious system. It was made up of three different groups. Okay, Maybe you've heard the term Sanhedrin. Who Sunday school people have heard Sanhedrin? That's another word for the council. The council is made up of three different people. You had the chief priests like Caiaphas, who you see in Mel Gibson's movie and the Bible show, and he's always like real you know, haughty and mean, and he's the high priest at the time. There's the chief priests like Caiaphas. Then there were the elders who were wealthy, landowning type people. And then you had the third group, which is like the teachers of the law. And all of these men gathered around, they formed the Sanhedrin, and they were like the supreme court of all things Jewish law and practice and religion. And Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, is a member of the council, which is a huge surprise. Because guess what? The council, like Caiaphas, are portrayed many times in the gospel as haughty, arrogant, keep with the status quo, bad guys. That's a huge surprise. But Luke tells us, no, no, no. He's a good and upright man. And he's good and upright. He's a man of character who had not consented to their decision in action. He was the one standing in the room who was bold enough to say, Jesus, not so bad, not so much a blasphemer. Maybe there's something to this man. And he says nay when everybody else says yay, send him to the cross. Here's Joseph. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph came from a Judean town of Arimathea and he was ready for the reign of God. He was ready for God's king to come and displace all the other kingdoms and for true peace to rule. And he probably saw Jesus and heard of Jesus and was willing to go against his council mates and say, don't send this man to die because I see something of God's kingdom and power in this man. That's bold. He's not just a good and upright man. This guy was waiting for the kingdom of God and saw kingdom in Jesus, the king and kingdom bringer. Joseph of Arimathea doesn't get a lot of rap or pub, but this man is legit. And Luke is fun to say, at the end of Jesus' life, prominent Jewish leaders were waiting for the kingdom of God. At the beginning of Jesus' life, we talked in Advent, there was a prominent religious Jewish leader like Simeon and Zechariah. And we're told they're good and upright and waiting for God's kingdom. They had hitched their wagons to Jesus. They were certain Jesus was king, and now Jesus is dead. This just ain't his best buddies, the disciples. There are other people who had hitched their wagons and cast their votes for Jesus. And now, what happens next? What do they do? Joseph, bold in front of the council, he's also bold in front of Pilate. Look what he does. So going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down. Can you imagine the gall of a wealthy Jewish leader going to the wealthy Roman leader and saying, hey, that rebel that Rome crucified, I'd like to have him, please. Thank you very much. Can you imagine not only the boldness, could you put yourself in the days of Joseph the D-A-Z-E days of Joseph, 
who now that he's boldly proclaimed, I want him, he's now totally hitched his wagon to the crucified Messiah who his other buddies hours before had voted to death. Now he's got to take the long walk outside of the city, up the hill, just on the other side of town, at the place of the skull called Golgotha, and don't gloss over the fact that he not only asked for Jesus' body, Joseph of Arimathea was the one who took it down. Can you imagine? Not a picture on our slides, cross. Can you imagine reaching up and taking down Jesus from the cross? That had to have been the moment he moves from days to despair. God's king shouldn't have wound up in my arms dead. This is a place with real people and real emotions. And because it's five words here in our Bibles, we like to just gloss over it. And I've been hung up on then he took it down all week. And so he gives this crucified criminal who he knows is not just a criminal, the dignity, and quickly he says he wrapped it in linen cloth and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. The thing about tombs is that there were many tombs in the neighborhood. You'd go to one tomb, but there'd be several benches. And so Jesus is the first and only in the tomb. Whose tomb was it? Other Gospels, it's Joseph's tomb. Another bold choice. He's going to his own family plot, his wealthy plot. He wraps this crucified teacher and gives it dignity and care and puts it in his own tomb. But he's doing it quickly because it was preparation day. Preparation day means Friday. Friday is when you prepare for the Sabbath, which was about to begin. Sabbath was not Sunday, it's Saturday. Sabbath is Saturday. Okay? Saturday is Sabbath, and it begins at sundown Friday. So Good Friday, we have the cross. We have Joseph in a daze, boldly going, carefully taking Jesus' body. And just before the time of rest, places Jesus in a tomb and has that stone rolled over. And he goes back to life as he knew it. He goes back like he had done so many times before and got ready to rest for the Jewish Sabbath. Because the one who had said, I am Lord of the Sabbath, was in a tomb at the beginning of Sabbath. You want to talk about desperate. You want to talk about a daze. I want to think of Joseph and those moments, the night of the funeral, after the person you loved is gone. You go back to the same bed, to the same room, but somehow everything is different because you know the world is without that person. And you have a choice in that moment. You say, what next? What do I do? I know that nothing will ever be the same. He goes home and he faces a world without Jesus, Messiah. He wasn't the only one involved. He wasn't the only one desperate and getting used to the new life. He says, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. See, Luke gives a lot of prominence to women in his gospel. 
And he ought to, because women were told supported Jesus' ministry out of their own funds and money. There were tons of women that followed Jesus and were involved in hearing him and working with him. And so they come, and we're just in our reading earlier, they were on the outskirts watching Jesus die. Now they're watching him be buried. And they have to do this, if you think about it, because in those tombs in that day, when you roll a big stone over it, we don't put the gravestone like, here lies Adam Wood, lover of tacos and Simpsons, and his girls. Not in that order. Y'all inscribe that on my tomb that just came off the top of my head. Maybe it's spirit-inspired. That's it. Somebody write it down. Get it to William's funeral home in Garland, Texas. There was no mausoleum. There was, no, there was a tomb, and so they followed at a distance, and they say, okay, that's where Jesus was laid. And just like Joseph, they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Joseph wrapped them in cloths. Not only were there multiple spaces in the tomb, there were multiple spaces, mo, excuse me, multiple stages to bury a body in the Jewish custom. They'd put the body in the tomb. Jesus was the only one and the first one in that tomb. And then at a later time, they'd come and they'd put spices and, and things because what would happen is, man, bodies decay. And so Jesus, who's wrapped and placed in a tomb, they go home to prepare spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment because they thought like with every other death, every other time, every other person in life they knew, they've got to go on with business as usual, even though Jesus Messiah is dead, they've got to get the spices ready, and they've got to go put it on the body of the man they loved and followed and worshipped. And they've got to have a grieving process in the Jewish time that as the body decayed, this is gross, earmuffs, as the body decayed, what would happen is the bones would be left and later on at another time they would gather the bones and they would go and take care so that the next person can come and be in the tomb. So they are preparing for life as they know it without Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah, King, Teacher, Lord, Friend, Healer, Rescuer. What do you do but pick up the pieces and do the same thing you've done? You're on autopilot, you're dazed, you're desperate. It's Saturday. Sabbath has just begun, Friday at sundown. It's time to rest and think about a world without Jesus Messiah. They were obedient just like Joseph, and they went down. And I, at this point, I'm thinking, y'all know I like Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, I know I like it. I think last Palm Sunday I talked about it and dropped a funky lyrics on you. Jesus Christ Superstar had a lot of controversy because at the end of Jesus Christ Superstar, Jesus is left hanging on the cross and all the women and hippies and disciples, they slowly and sadly made their way back to the bus. They hopped in and it was as if to say, well, that was fun. Peace and love and God's kingdom. But was he really God's king who brought the kingdom of God? Party's over. Put yourself in this space and then have a pastor say, choose hope. Have somebody pull their arm around Joseph and the women and say, hey, it's Saturday. Go rest and get ready for a life without God's king, right? They still had a choice. 
They still had a choice, and they go back to waiting for the kingdom of God just like Joseph had. They still have a choice in that moment. Do we despair, or do we wait for God to move and act in powerful ways that we've never experienced? I mentioned a funeral, and I mentioned the grieving process, and I remember when Amy's aunt died of breast cancer young, and I remember driving away from the seminary, uh, the cemetery, excuse me, driving away from the cemetery and stubbornly saying, I refuse to believe that's it. Oh, that we would see Christy again. Oh, that her body that was wrecked and ravaged, or maybe laid in a tomb in linen cloth, oh, that God would do something. And one day we'd see her again. And she would join us with new bodies. I want to invite Caravan to come up. She's been in a place where she had to make some tough choices. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be in that place. I want to sit in this place for just a minute longer. And I want Kara to come and talk to us about a choice she had. And, and this life as we know it is now different. And, and what she's learned in the process from Jesus. And to be a person of hope. Let's listen to Kara. Thank you for sharing, by the way. This just came up in conversation this week when we were talking about stuff, so thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Y'all give Kara a hand. Thank you for sharing your story. The thing about hope is that it doesn't excuse the darkness of the world. The thing about hope is that it's a yes to hope, a yes to the object of our hope, which is Jesus And it's a no to despair and a desperate situation. So that's Friday and the beginning of Saturday. And Saturday is the quiet day when they're racked with grief and they're wondering what's next. And then we see as the next chapter rolls over to 24 and we're going to celebrate again tomorrow is on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, very early in the morning. The women took those spices that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. So they found the stone that they had spotted. Joseph's stone, Joseph's tomb. They had hung back and they saw it. And they came expecting to prepare a dead body. They came expecting what they had expected in every family member that had gone before them. They came expecting in a world of death and darkness and sin for death to be perpetual and for death to continue. They came expecting a dead body. And what they found instead was a stone that had been rolled away from the tomb. In Mark's gospel, as they're approaching, they're talking to one another and they say, who will roll away the stone? And what's going on in that space is, who will roll away the stone? Because the stone is big, they're thinking practically. And Mark includes it in his gospel because these women who are coming expecting a dead body says, who will roll away the stone? But for us, the stone is death. The stone is sin. The stone is all of the forces that conspire against us to keep us hopeless. And we walk upon every situation expecting a stone to be smack dab in our face. We expect every funeral to be a stone sealed. Done. That's it. Death wins. And Easter is an invitation to hope because Easter is the day that Jesus put death in the grave and He walks out of it. 
And that's what we're celebrating tomorrow. And even as we sit in this place tonight, where Jesus in the historical calendar may still be in the ground, we can talk about the resurrection because Jesus is alive and there is hope. And Jesus' people are not called to come and lay spices on him. We're called to lay our lives before him and be people of hope because our Savior is alive again. And so what happens is the stone that was such the exclamation point to Jesus' story is rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, surprise number two, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so then, they're shocked at this point. We talk about days, we talk about desperation. Look what happens next. While they were wondering about this, Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So in their fright, they're confused and they're wondered, they're freaked out. Where is Jesus? Has someone stolen Jesus? He was not here. How did, who moved the stone? Who moved Jesus? What's going on? Two men gleamed like lightning. How would you feel? You are freaked out, right? Then they bow down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them this question, Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a perfectly rational question on their end. It's a perfectly irrational question because to them, tombs and stones meant periods. It meant death. The question seems crazy. He's saying living people aren't in tombs. You're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place, ladies. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here in this place of death. He is risen. He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then, only then did they remember the words that He had shared with them many times before. Only then did it, the light bulb come on. Because we walk through our life We walk into this church, and I think many of us in the church in America walk into churches looking for a dead Savior or a dead teacher named Jesus who has nothing to do with our lives today. And this passage and this message keeps us awake to the fact that Jesus is alive, and we should not walk into our churches as if they are tombs expecting a dead teacher who had a lot of nice things to say, we should walk into this place that is the living body of the living Christ. Why, church, are you looking for the living among the dead? We ought to be a people who are alive because Jesus is alive. Well, it's hard to believe. I've not seen Jesus. I don't get it. I don't see him. I see you. I see my wife. I see all these people. I don't see Jesus. Guess who didn't see Jesus either? Them. All they had was these two crazy guys with lightning clothes saying he's risen. And then they go back in the next, che- in the next section and they run back and they say, hey guys, Jesus is alive. Well, I don't see Jesus. Where's Jesus? And they say, this is a fairy tale. You're crazy. And Peter says, ah, but I better check it out. That Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, ooh. And he runs and he says, what's going on? Guess what? They didn't see Jesus. And they believed. It took them a while. We haven't seen Jesus. Do we believe? Because the answer to that question is the same choice. It's a yes to hope and it's a no to despair. If Jesus is alive, then Jesus changes everything. 
And God is vindicated. And the king that they thought was dead and done is actually God's true king. And he's not just conquered Rome. He's conquered sin, death, and the grave. Because if death can't hold him, what can? And that's where we're going to celebrate even more tomorrow as a family of life together. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that is dwelling among us. We thank you that you've taken up residence in us. We ask, Lord, that more life and power and hope would be rampant in this place and that King Jesus would be the only name, the name above all names, because he died, but now he lives. So Lord, as we come to you in these moments and remember the Friday that the body was broken and the blood was shed, would we stay there but for a moment, remembering the sacrifice and the supreme love you showed us? But as we take the bread, take the wine, and as we move back to our seats, would we move into a place of celebration that the tomb is empty? Tonight we're standing in between Friday and Sunday, but Lord, We know that you're alive. We know that you're with us. Keep us awake. Keep us hopeful. For one day we know that death will be done, tears will be done, and life will fill all in all in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love you. We thank you for this moment. Amen.